Uh, tonight, we're going to take what we've already learned about gender and what we've already learned about the church as this new covenant family and kind of put them together and talk about men and women in the church. Now, there's a couple of baseline pieces that I want to lay down um, just as we get started here. Um, all of them are either things that have been stated or implications of things that have been stated so far. And so first, the church needs the full participation of men and women to be the community it's called to be. We've already seen that for the image of God to be shown in any community, we need both male and female, and that applies to the church as well. We've also seen that the church is God's ideal community, his family, uh, and so the significance of gender, as we've seen, being relational and modeled around those familial archetypes are especially pertinent uh, in the church. It's different when we talk about men and women in the church than when we talk about men and women in the office place. It's different than when we talk about men and women in society at large or in government or in any of these other levels because the church is a family and it functions as a family and it calls us in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to use the family as a way of viewing our relationship with one another. In other words, we don't just relate to one another in the church as fellow non-gendered Christians, but as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, okay? And so that means that there's a closer relationship between God's design for the family and God's design for the church than, again, uh, your place of business, okay? So saying this, uh, we also need to say, to put it a different way, um, that men and women don't lose their gender distinctions within the church without falling short of the image of God. And so I'm not just suggesting that the church should be a place where both men and women are welcome, but where both male and female are necessary. Okay? And if there's a lacking of the full expression of those genders in the church, the church lacks for it. Now, we're going to end by trying to talk about what this looks like generally in the church, just the relationships of men and women in the church, how to be a man in the context of a church, how to be a woman in the context of the church. Um, but first, we need to talk about if these differences have any forms of boundaries, set any forms of uh, limitations. And of course, um, this is where the debate has raged, not on the limits of men, but on the limits of women. In fact, I would suggest to you that nothing has hindered good Christian thinking about gender more than the gender debate within the church about what a woman can or cannot do. And not because it's not an important issue, not because it's one uh, that isn't important to the Bible, but because it's been the only thing that we've talked about for about 30 years. It's the only way we've asked the question about what it doesn't mean to be male and female. It's the only place where books have been written and rewritten and, you know, responded to and then response to those responses. Um, and so, uh, so nonetheless, that is something that we need to do tonight. But before we talk about boundaries, we need to talk about where there are not boundaries, okay? 
Um, and, and this is really important. I'll use this metaphor again later in the evening, but remember in the garden, as the serpent is tempting Eve, he focuses on the single prohibition. Don't eat of the tree. He focuses on God's uh, lack of character and goodness and even the fact that that restraint is keeping Eve from something good. But when we go back and we look at that command as it's given, remember it's given in the context of a veritable smorgasbord of orchard and garden opportunities to eat, right? God doesn't come to Eve and say, hey, I know you're hungry, but don't touch that tree, right? It's not like the experiment we do with kindergarten kids where we take the s'more and we put it on the table and we say, we're going to be right back and just wait and see what happens to the s'more, right? God sets Adam and Eve in a garden overflowing with abundance and possibilities and only makes one tree off limits, The reason I bring this up is because if there are limitations to women in the church, it is in the context of a broad and necessary garden of possibilities, and we would be mistaken to focus only on the negative and not see the positive. So, first and foremost, women and men are equal in status, and both belong to the kingdom of God. Women and men are equal in status and both belong to the kingdom of God. Now, actually, this is visible even within the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, We see. uh, Hold on, I'm trying to figure out where my notes kick in here. Let's just write it out and see what happens. The equal worth of husbands and wives is seen in a number number of different spheres in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, In legal parity, both of them are legally responsible. Both of them have legal rights in the Old Testament. Uh, In regard to parental obedience, the Old Testament calls children to obey father and mother. Um, In economic privilege, okay, here is the quote I want. That's, That's why this is going on. This is what I want. Legal parity in regard to parental obedience, economic privileges that allow for daughters and wives to inherit property, and liberty for both sexes to have personal spiritual encounters, experience answered prayer, engage in public worship, and perhaps even participate in the public office. Okay, two things there. One, we find men and women encountering God. God calling them into things, showing himself to them personally and specifically, revealing plans that he has for their lives, desiring for them to be made known. Um, We think not just of Abraham, but of Hagar. We think not just of Samuel, but of Deborah. We think not just of um, Gideon, but of Samson's mother, the wife of Manoah, right? There is this this uh, equal reality. And notice here he says, and perhaps even participate in the prophetic office. I don't know why he's reeling it back there. Clearly participate in the prophetic office. Okay, so Deborah was both a judge and a prophetess. Isaiah's wife is known as a prophetess. Huldah is the woman who is, uh, who is gone to in the days of Josiah. When the Old Testament books of probably Genesis through Deuteronomy, what we would call the Torah, is rediscovered in the temple. 
It's Hulda living in the area of Jerusalem that they go to to say, what is God saying about this discovery we've just made despite the fact that Jeremiah is alive and on the premises, okay? Um, but by the days of Jesus, the status of women was lower both in Israel proper as well as at Rome at large, okay? In the second temple, the one that was not built by Solomon, but the one that was rebuilt in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and then deeply remodeled by King Herod, okay? In that temple, women were not allowed beyond the court of women, okay? So think of the, uh, the, uh, the second temple there. Um, think of it like concentric circles, okay? So the outer courts are what we call the courts of the Gentiles. That's where most of the action is. That's the largest part of the temple. That's where Jesus overturns the tables. And then there was another level in the court of women, and obviously the court of Jewish women, right? Because Gentiles would have been stopped in that first one. And then inside that was where the men could come and bring their sacrifices. But we don't see that type of division in the Old Testament. In fact, if you read Leviticus, women were hired for service in the tabernacle. Not as priests, but present and serving. In fact, I would suggest that the primary way we see a Nazarite vow being fulfilled not by a Samson but by your average Israelite is in that capacity volunteering at the tabernacle okay which was open to men and to women but by the second temple women weren't allowed beyond the court of women it was seen as not respectable for a rabbi to speak to a woman who wasn't family remember how awkward Jesus's disciples get in John chapter 4 when he's addressing alone the woman at the well who's not just a Samaritan but John tells us also a woman right which is against the practice of the Jews uh, women were not taken on as disciples okay now side note this is I think one of the ironies of how uh, how we sometimes read the Bible uh, through biased lenses um, but I had a lady in our church a while ago whose mother was involved in another church and was leading a women's Bible study. Okay, pretty standard fare. But the men of the church, specifically the elders, came to her and said, the only thing you need to teach the women is how to be good mothers and good wives. Okay, now, side note, there's a little bit of biblical precedent in that. Paul actually commands that the women in the churches raise up younger women to be good wives and good mothers. That's fine. But they limited that and said, you don't need to do Bible studies. You don't need to study theology. You don't need to do anything else. Okay. And so I was talking with her about this, trying to give counsel to her mother, and we were working through things. And I was reminded of that famous story of Mary and Martha, right? And so here Martha is in the kitchen working and sweating and serving and she's frustrated with her sister Mary who instead of helping get things ready is seated at the feet of Jesus. And for us, you know, that's become kind of a paradigm of the difference between devotion uh, and this kind of work ethic Christianity that misses what Jesus there calls the better part. But the irony is that it's so easy for us to hold that up for a, as a model and forget that it's happening with women, okay? That Mary is the one who's sitting at the feet and learning of Jesus as a woman. And as I just mentioned, 
Rabbis didn't take female disciples. That's what makes the whole situation so awkward is Mary is sitting right there like she's one of the gang. And Jesus commends her for it. Um, The Gospels record, in fact, that Jesus has a lot of interaction with women, and much of it was countercultural. Check this out in Luke chapter 13. Now, when he was teaching in one of the synagogues of the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully strengthen herself. Straighten herself, excuse me. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And as he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, Look, there's six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Now listen to Jesus' answer. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Okay. He suggests here that their view uh, denies the dignity of this woman's humanity, which they would do similar things for their animals. But what's striking is that turn of phrase, daughter of Abraham. Stephen Clark here, when Jesus sees a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years, he has compassion on her and heals her without asking. He does so because she is a daughter of Abraham and is thus worthy of his concern. Jesus' recognition of the woman's spiritual status along with the sons of Abraham may not have been original, but it may well have been since the first existent rabbinic parallel to such a phrase dates from about 70 years later. We don't have a place in Jewish writings prior to the Gospel of Luke where any woman is identified with the phrase daughter of Abraham, but it very comfortably rolls off the mouth or rolls along the tongue of Jesus. As I mentioned in John chapter 4, Jesus meets with a woman who's also a Samaritan. The Samaritan woman is struck by this that Jesus just begins a conversation. Woman, please give me a drink. She says this, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Now, there is a great divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were seen as uh, ethnically half-breeds and religious heretics to the Jews. Uh, When most rabbis would travel on their way to Jerusalem, they would detour around Samaria from Galilee. But Jesus goes right through it. He sits down. She knows this. But if we read this, we would think that the main problem here is a racial difference, is this ethnicity difference. But notice what happens when the disciples come back. Just then, the disciples came back, and they marveled he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Okay, and so they're staggered. They're struck by the fact that he's having this conversation with a woman who is not his family. Okay. Luke chapter 10. This is what I was mentioning with Mary and Martha, okay? Now, when, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, sat at Jesus' feet is basic language for discipleship, okay? Come and sit at my feet is the way that a rabbi would summon 
when he was to be speaking. Here we find her in the posture of a learner. Jesus encourages her. And so as it goes on here, Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Um, in Luke chapter 8, now just a side note, uh, Luke's gospel is written with the outcast in mind. He focuses more on the poor, on Gentiles, on women, on outcasts. They're just regularly present. He loves to tell these stories. And so Luke is the only one who tells us that there was a whole group of women who were basically the financial supporters of Jesus' ministry. Look at this. Soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Okay? So they're not just disciples, but they're financially participating in Jesus's ministry. I've always resonated with these words of Dorothy Sayer about the ministry of Jesus to women. She says, perhaps it's no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this man. There's never been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the woman God help us or the ladies God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. Okay? And so Jesus' ministry was striking in how uniquely he treated women. Okay? But we also see this continuing beyond Jesus' ministry in the equal status granted in the kingdom as well as in the early church. Okay? Uh, for example... Acts chapter 2 is where the church proper begins, right? On the day of Pentecost, okay? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, okay? Now notice here, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, now, the question is, who is the they here? Who was the they gathered? And all of them, it says, received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. In fact, they go out and they begin to proclaim in these new tongues the glories of God, and this leads to the opportunity for Peter's sermon but we're told earlier in chapter 1 exactly who this group is that is gathered 
on the day of Pentecost. When they had went, entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. In other words, the eleven, right? The disciples. But also... All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay. And so when we get back to chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon all of them. All of them, men and women, begin to speak in tongues. All of them are ushered out into the streets and begin to proclaim the glory of God. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, when, when Peter explains what's happening... He does it addressing both what's happening in men and women. He says, but this, what you see around you here on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What is the emphasis in the book of Joel where, where Peter is quoting from here? The emphasis is on the universality of the gift of the spirit, right? From the highest sector to the lowest, from the oldest to the youngest, both men and women. And so he points to that being a demonstration not only that the promise has come, but that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has poured out what you have seen here. And then he goes on and he says, and this is available to you and your children and your children's children and all, all who would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? It's an open thing for everybody, male and female. Uh, notice here in the book of Galatians. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now you might read that at first glance and go, but Paul addresses men there, the sons of God. As I've mentioned before, the reason why he uses sons here is because he's talking about inheritance. And so in the same way that in Ephesians he says we are all collectively, male and female alike in the church, the bride of Christ, so here we are all co collectively, male and female, the sons of God. Now, just so you know that I'm not just inserting that in, look at the next verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to have to come back to this verse because those who argue that, therefore, there should be no distinction in role or no limitation in the way that men and women behave in church use this as their key verse. Okay? Because here, doesn't it just say there is no male, female in Christ Jesus? Isn't that enough for, we, uh, for us to know that gender has been set aside and is no longer relevant for the Christian? But all I want you to get right now is that clearly here, by making both sons and both inheritors, he equalizes the status of men and women. Equally saved, at equally the same level, expecting the same reward. That is what he is stressing here. 
Okay. Now again, we'll return to if that uh, overarching means uh, a limitation, but, but let me just remind you here that this idea of, uh, of co-heirs is not limited to just this one reference in Galatians. Listen to the words of Peter here. Here in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's talking about husbands and wives, and he says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, we don't have time to camp on this, but I've become convinced, because of very nerdy avenues of study, that the concern here is physical abuse within the marriage. Now, very quickly, just so you know where I'm coming from, it's because in this passage, 1 Peter 3, and in 1 Timothy 1, are the only two places where men and women are addressed distinctively in the New Testament, one after the other. Okay? Not as husbands and wives, but just as men and, and women. And in both of them, it's, it focuses on women and their adornment, Okay, as a primary issue, modesty. Now, side note, because I can't resist, Paul's concern in those passages has nothing to do with the lustful glances of your brothers in Christ, period. He doesn't mention men. The concern of modesty, the concern of a lack of adornment is for a woman's sense of self and not the temptation of a man. That is an idea that we have grafted in through this purity culture thing. It's just not in the text. In fact, aren't we aware of the fact that women can find their identities in vain and external things? That's what Paul is concerned about. Okay? But also, in 1 Timothy, he tells men that they should lift up holy hands and use their hands in praise instead of fisticuffs. When we look for the parallel here, this is the only one we find. When he says here showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, he's saying, look, just because you're stronger than her, don't forget that she is a co-heir in Christ. That's what he's pushing against. The idea of weaker vessel here is not weaker in any way except for the general reality that on average, women are smaller than men. Okay, that is his concern here. But I want you to notice that he refers to them as heirs of you of the grace of life. Okay, heirs with you of the grace of life, co-heirs, full, uh, the full privileges available in Christ are for women and men. Okay. Now, 1 Timothy 2 is another passage we'll return to, but I want to focus in just on this one verse here where, where it says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, when we read that in a modern sense, the first thing that, that hits us is the submissiveness of it. But what's striking in the first century world is just the first three words, let a woman learn. Okay. That wasn't an available avenue, but it was one that Paul demands in this verse. Okay. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, women have their own faith apart from their husbands. And both Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 and Peter in 1 3 speak to wives with unbelieving husbands and his advice, despite the advice of the entire Roman world, is not follow your husband's religion. But here's how you should behave as a believer with an unbelieving spouse. Okay. So, equal in status and privilege. When we read in Ephesians, God has granted you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that is true whether you are a man or a woman. The Holy Spirit is fully available to you. Justification, sanctification, 
All of those things are fully available to men and women in the church, and therefore, we have no sense of male over female status in the church. Any, any more than we do, as Galatians says, than Jew over Gentile, or free man over slave. Those status are all relativized by our deepest identity in Christ. But also, both men and women are gifted and called to ministry in the body of Christ. Now, we've already seen this in a big way because that's what Pentecost is all about. Why are the disciples waiting in Jerusalem at all? But tarry in Jerusalem until the promise of power comes upon you. Then you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And the Spirit doesn't select the men as the missionaries and leave the women in the audience, but falls upon all of them, empowers all of them for ministry, and that's something we see maintained. That was Joel's promise, right? That the Spirit would empower both men and women, and that they would prophesy. Okay. The giftless in the New Testament, okay, which are pretty easy to remember where to find them. Okay, here they are. There is Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Those are the four passages in the New Testament that talk about and describe a list of spiritual gifts or spiritual callings. Okay? Not one of them makes any distinction in gender. Paul doesn't say, you men, the Spirit has gifts like leadership, administration, and teaching. You women, the gift of helps. It's not there. The gifts seem to be equal opportunity employers. Okay. Um, in fact, um, again, I want to reiterate that that includes, I think, biblically, the gifts of teaching, of leadership, of prophecy, okay, as well as the gifts of healings and miracles. They are not gender divided. In fact, we see women in all sorts of ministry in the New Testament. A striking amount of women involved in the ministry of the New Testament. Paul refers regularly to women laboring with him as fellow workers. Here's an example in chapter 4, verse 3. Yet I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Okay, notice the modifiers. I know I emphasize up here all the time the modifiers. I'm, I'm helping you think about how language works. And so here, the, the subject that he's talking about are these women who have labored, okay? They've done work side by side with me in the gospel together, okay? With me and together side by side, okay? All three of those provide emphasis to the reality that these are co-workers, right there doing the same work that Paul is doing with Paul in the ministry uh, he says the same thing here in the book of Romans. Okay? Romans chapter 16 is like the shout out at the end of a rap record. It's just a list of all these people that are with Paul saying hello to those he's writing to and all the people who are in Rome that he wants to make sure he knows are there and says hello to. But notice what he says here. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Both uh, Prissa there being a woman. Uh, she is always listed with her husband, Aquila. Sometimes it's Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Prissa is a diminutive. It's a, a nickname. Okay. He's on endearing terms with her. But here's another thing. Not once in the New Testament is it Aquila and Priscilla. She always comes first. 
okay? Um, that includes, side note, when they pull aside Apollos to teach him in the stronger way. Priscilla and Aquila do that, not Aquila and Priscilla. Okay, um, but co-workers here. And then notice here in verse six, greet Mary who has worked hard for you in Rome, actively participating in the ministry at Rome. Consider here, greet the workers in the Lord, Trephenia and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Paresis, who has worked hard in the Lord. All of these are women's names. Okay? Uh, we could add to this Phoebe, who's at the very beginning of the list. She is the one who carries the epistle to the Romans and is identified as a deacon of the church in Corinth. Okay? Uh, she is at the very least a minister, if the word there for deacon is the general term where we get our word minister, uh, or it may be that she serves as a deacon in the office of deacon that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy. Okay. Uh, like I said, Priscilla ministers with her husband, but is prominent. Uh, we also see women operating as the hosts of house churches. Consider here in the book of Acts. Okay. Paul has a method to missionary work. He pulls into town, and the first question he asks is, excuse me, can you point the way to the nearest synagogue? That's always where he begins. And at once the synagogue responds, whether positively or negatively, then he goes on to the non-Jewish people in the community. Okay? When he gets to Philippi, he doesn't find a synagogue. Now, the way that you get a synagogue in dispensational or diaspora Judaism Okay. The way you get a synagogue is you have to have at least 10 Jewish males living in the same community, and then boom, you have a synagogue. Okay. Um, apparently, there weren't 10 Jewish males in all of Philippi. So Paul does something really interesting. He goes to the river, and there he finds women doing laundry in the river, and he preaches to them. And one of them is this woman, Lydia. One, of us, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, okay? That phrase there, worshiper of God, means that she was a Gentile who worshiped the God of the Jews, okay? Sometimes in older translations, they're referred to as God-fearers. These are the ones who usually light up like, uh, uh, light like a stick of dynamite on Paul's mission, who are sitting in the synagogue and and go, wow, this is amazing, there's a place for us, and then gather all their non-God-fearing Gentile friends, and boom, we have a new church, okay? So she's one of those. She's not Jewish. She does worship the God of the Bible, but here he explains the gospel, and it says here, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. And we believe that she became the host of the church in Philippi, that it met in her house, okay? Um, but uh, we also see this in a couple of other places. Take, for example, the church of Colossae. In the, uh, sorry, the Church of Colossae in the household of Nympha. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. Okay. Stephen from Acts chapter 6, one of the ones who's chosen as a deacon. Uh, that is not right. That's Philip. My notes are wrong. Philip from Acts chapter 6, one of the men who's chosen as a deacon, we're told later in the book of Acts, has four virgin daughters. 
and all of them are known as prophets in the early church. On the next day, it says, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, the one who leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, who was one of the seven, the seven deacons from Acts chapter 6, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. It takes the time to tell us. Now we also see women actively and regularly involved in the early history of the church beyond the New Testament. Um, is this going to go to First Timothy 3? It is. Okay, I don't have this quote in here, but listen. Hold on, I'm suspicious. I bet this is it right here. Nope. Good. Okay. Listen, Stephen Clark says, Clement of Alexandria describes the work of women in the following way. The apostles, giving themselves without respite to the work of evangelism as befitted their ministry, took with them women, not as wives, but as sisters, to share in the ministry to women living at home. By their agency, the teaching of the Lord reached the women's quarters without arousing suspicion. Okay. Throughout the Roman Empire, houses were usually involved with a women's quarters. Okay. And so the apostles couldn't just walk into the houses and then say, may I speak to the wives? They were generally, in Roman society and in Jewish society to a degree, cloistered. But they brought along women, and women were provided access and led those women to Jesus. Now, we also see women operating in the office of deacon, an official role in the New Testament church. Now, granted, in the book of Acts, chapter 6, when seven are appointed to take care of the distribution to widows, they look for seven men. And the word there is men. Okay? But they're also not identified at that time as deacons. But as the early church continues on and spreads beyond Jerusalem, we finally get to a point where Paul is instructing Timothy to appoint officers in the churches in the area of Ephesus. Two officers are listed, overseers or elders or presbyterios, bishops, all of these words being overlapping, and then the office of the deacon. Okay. We see uh, here that this role is open to women. Now, um, to make this point... Hold on. We're off track. I need to find out where I am. All apologies. I did something weird. Let's go forward instead of backwards. Almost there. Bingo. All right. So here in 1 Timothy 3, Paul lays out the standards for the office of deacon. Now, one of the things that's hard about the office of deacon is we're not given a job description. We are given the requirements for applicants which is what we have here in chapter 3. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. 
They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Then it goes on and it says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And you go, now wait a minute. Not only does this seem to speak of men primarily as deacons, being the husband of one wives, but it distinctly mentions their wives here. So how can deacons be women? Here's the thing. This word here, translated wives, is the word gyna. Okay? In fact, in the New Testament and in Greek at large, the word for wife and the word for woman is the same word. We determine which one is being referred to by context and a lot of times by the uh, existence of the definite article, okay, or a pronoun, okay? So your women would be wives, okay? Here, however, we translate wives because later it says they must be the husband of one wife, but I think that's a mistake, the reason why I suggest that that's the case um, is because, for one, the possessive uh, pronoun is not here, their own wives. Okay? Although it does say in the English, their wives, that word is added for, for understanding. What it actually just says here is, gyna, likewise, must be dignified. Okay? Now, there's a couple of other pieces that go into this. Um, but what I would suggest is it's better to use this as women. Structurally, this makes better sense of the passage. We get general guidelines for all deacons, male or female, in verses 8 through 10. Then we get guidelines for female deacons in verse 11. And then guidelines for male deacons in verse 12. Okay? And then we get the reward for deacons in 13. So let me read it to you just slightly differently to suggest what I'm talking about. We'll get a running start here. Okay. Let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The women must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons, the men, each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own household well. And then we have the commendation. Okay. Um, now, another reason why I think this is a better way to read it is because right before we have the office of deacon, we have the office of overseer. There is no requirement for pastor's wives, okay? Let me say this again for the sake of Joel's wife, and those of you who knew Wink probably already got a good earful on this, um, but the Bible doesn't have an official office called pastor's wife. It doesn't have a, any expectation for the wives of pastors except once in Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he says uh, that aren't aren't uh, the apostles allowed to bring along their believing wives? In other words, the only calling of a pastor's wife is to be with her husband, okay? But doesn't it seem a little strange that the deacons being a lower and not a leadership office have requirements even for the wives, but for pastors there's no requirements? Again, it makes more sense that the office of pastor, as we will see, is restricted to only men, but the office of deacon is open to men and women. We also find women deacons serving in the New Testament. Okay. Now, simply here, what is a deacon? In the New Testament, 
The word deacon has a connotation that we don't always get from the word ministry. The majority of times we find it in the Bible, whether it's being used specifically or generically, it involves some sort of connection to food. Okay? So, for example, when it says that Jesus is in the wilderness and he's hungry and then he's tempted and the temptation ends in the Gospel of Luke, what does it say? The angels came to him and ministered to him, miraculously meeting his needs for physical hunger. Okay? Most of the time this word is used, you can find food or money somewhere in the context. In fact, here's another difference from deacons and pastors. Deacons, it says here, need to be not greedy for dishonest gain. That's not required of pastors or elders or overseers. Why would it be of deacons? Maybe it's because they handle money. Okay. Not only that, but when we go on and see how deacons serve in the first three centuries, universally, Deacons are the one who take care of physical needs within the church. Okay? So in our church, we have a deacon ministry, and this is how we explain it. The pastors take care of the spiritual needs of the church. The deacons take care of the physical needs. Okay? Um, so we do find women serving as deacons, taking care of spiritual needs, uh, or of physical needs. Uh, I already mentioned to you Phoebe, Notice what it says here in Romans 16.1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centria. Okay. Now, again, this may just be a general reference that she serves, but when you add it to she's a servant of a particular church, that sounds official, doesn't it? Okay. So I would suggest to you here, Paul is identifying Phoebe as a deacon. In the first and second and third century understood uh, the office of deacon. Derek Sherwin Bailey, the New Testament bears witness to the antiquity of the office of deaconess, okay, which is generally how we've gone about engendering the term of deacon, deacon and deaconess. Okay? And Pliny attests its existence in the East from a very early date. There's even reason to believe that it continued without intermission at least from the beginning of the second century until the middle of the third when the didascalia, an extraordinary metaphor, in an extraordinary metaphor, refers to the deaconess as a type of the Holy Spirit and worthy of honor accordingly. As do also the apostolic constitutions somewhat more than a century later, though with significant alterations and additions. Fourth century sources contain many allusions to deaconesses, while in the sixth there is legislation relating to them in the edicts of Justinian. Okay, and so the presence of deacons in the early church, the reference to Phoebe being a deacon, the requirement that can be translated of the women also with these particular traits, makes us believe that the office of deacon should be rightly open to women uh, as well as men. Okay. Now this is why in some churches you may have had a deacon overseeing children's ministry, because sometimes this is a junk drawer term for we don't know what else to call a woman in ministry, so I guess she's a deacon. Okay. Uh, this language of pastor, elder, overseer, deacon, all of this, church polity, how a church is organized is stuff that's tremendously debated upon and different from church to church, and so it's kind of a messy thing. Um, but I would suggest to you that we can make a pretty good case uh, for women serving in an official capacity, recognized by the church, one that carried responsibility, which they call the deacon. Okay. 
Now, we need to recognize that if the New Testament does give restrictions for what a woman can do in church, it's in this context of broad opportunity and recognition within the church. We see women empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see them evangelizing. We see them teaching. We see them operating in even the miraculous gifts like prophecy. Uh, we see them installed in offices in the church and co-laborers with the missionaries and then continuing on in the first and second century, very present. In fact, many historians have made a case that one of the great, uh, the great incentives that grew the early church as it exploded in the first few centuries was their view and treatment of women. That there was a place for women of equality and dignity within the religion of Christianity. Okay. And so, an entire orchard of possibilities. And remember, I'm not just saying, women, there's good things, so don't worry about the things you're not allowed to do. I'm saying we need women in all of these capacities. And I would suggest to you that because of... Um, misunderstandings of gender or over-protectionistic things about this, that the church has grown deficient trying to keep the rules, has become malnourished from the lack of women involved in fully-orbed and helpful ministry, uh, and it has been to the harm of the church. Okay. So, um, one of the things that we need to avoid is overly limiting a woman's role in the church. Uh, but we also here are putting any commands the New Testament has does ha state about boundaries in its context. Okay. So where do we not see women in the New Testament church? Specifically in the offices of apostle. Okay, so not disciples, we just saw traveling with the twelve were many women, but the office of apostle or the twelve, okay, um, that would be the first one as well as pastor or elder or overseer. So let's just walk through this very quickly. Jesus appoints by name, personally selecting after a night of prayer, twelve apostles, all of them male. Now, there are some who say, well, yeah, but they were all Jewish too, but that doesn't mean that there can't be Gentile leaders in the church, which would be a fair point. Um, what they're actually trying to say is, maybe it doesn't matter that they were men. However, remember one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, betrays Jesus, hangs himself, and then in Acts chapter 1 is replaced. When they replace him, not only do they select a man, but that's actually verbally a requirement of the selection. So here in Acts chapter 1, verse 21, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who accompanied us during this, all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. When it says here that it needs to be one of the men, remember two things. One, this happens at the prayer meeting we just read about. 
It's not only men in attendance at this meeting, but Mary uh, and the women who traveled with Jesus as well. And two, the word here for men is the Greek word for exclusively men. Okay? Not one of the ones who was with Jesus, but one of the men. Okay. Now, that brings us to a question. What about Junia in Romans chapter 16? Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, if you read other translations, it will say, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Remember, we find apostles in the New Testament beyond the twelve. Okay, specifically, Paul comes to mind, but also Barnabas. They're both referred to as apostles. Here we have Junia. Now, if you have a King James Bible, they actually translate this name Junius because it's so problematic, which would be the male version of this name, but Junia is the name of a woman. Okay. Um, but there are two things to keep in mind here. Okay. First, as I already mentioned, there's different types of apostles. Okay. There is the 12 and Paul, which we would call capital A apostles. These are the ones who are given their calling directly by Christ, the ones who, when they write down words, they are scripture, the ones who are authoritative in the church. Okay? But we also find, like with Barnabas, lowercase a apostles. Okay? Because the word for apostle just means messenger, one who carries a message on behalf of someone else. And so we find apostles with lowercase a, and what they are are representatives of the churches. Uh, if we were to have a church council and we sent representatives, okay, that might be the apostle of Calvary Chapel Edmonds who shows up. That's not the same thing as a capital A apostle, is it? Okay. Um, but also, when we look at the passage as it is here, oh, and there's one other category. is uh, it, the, So there's the 12 and Paul. There's messengers of particular churches. And then the middle is also witnesses of the resurrection. Apostles were those who actually saw the risen Lord Jesus, who had a message as an eyewitness, which, uh, of course, included women. Just read the gospel accounts. Okay, so that's one thing. Um, but second, grammatically, as the ESV points out here, it's just as likely to read this as well-known to the apostles instead of among the apostles. In other words, the idea would be here that these are highly commendable people who are respected by the 12 back in Jerusalem. Okay. The, the, um, the Greek here is borderline um, ambiguous. It could really go either way. There's no reason just looking at the words themselves to decide which way to read this. And so, at the very least, we can say here that holding up Junia as Exhibit A of capital A female apostles doesn't really carry much water. Instead, like I said, we find Jesus appoints the twelve, and then when they reappoint a, a replacement for Judas, they choose a man, and it's one of the requirements. Okay. There's also the pastoral office as limited to only men. But before we look at that, what about what we read in Galatians 3? 
Generally, when we talk about appropriate roles for women within the church, the two words we use, both of them are somewhat of a mouthful, are egalitarian and complementarian. Okay? Egalitarian mean different, or excuse me, the, uh, equal with no mattering distinction. So they're not saying there's no difference between men and women, they're just saying those differences don't matter in their roles within the church. Okay? There are also egalitarians who are egalitarians in the church context, but not in the family. So they would maintain that there's a difference between a husband and a wife, or even a mother and a father, but that those distinctions are irrelevant within the church setting. Okay? Complementarians believe that uh, men and women are equal in value, but differ in role. And that those roles matter as well within the church. Now, within complementarianism, you will find a range. So you will find uh, people who believe, like that church that I counseled, uh, that women have no role in teaching whatsoever except in that one little verse teaching them how to be good moms and wives. Okay? Um, you will find those who say that women should not fulfill any public teaching like we're doing now where adult men and women are present. And we'll see where they get that idea from very shortly. Um, and then there is what I'm going to suggest tonight, which is that the limitations we find in the New Testament are primarily about the office and or role of pastor. Okay? Um, that it is, it is not teaching which is prohibited between men and women, but a particular type of teaching, the pastoral teaching. Okay. So what about this verse here that says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay. Doesn't this verse eradicate any distinction in men and women that would lead to a distinction in role? Most egalitarians see this verse as doing just that, of destroying any social hierarchy. Okay. That, that this just dismantles any sort of order where there's a requirement of these people are on the top and these people are on the bottom. In fact, sometimes they will take this to the degree that they will say everything else Paul says about gender, whether in marriage or in the church, has to be subject to the best thing he ever said, which is this. Okay? Uh, and so everything else can't actually hold up, can't actually stand because this is so significant. Okay. Um, Either they do this by saying that those passages cannot mean what they seem to mean, or that Paul laid the groundwork to overthrow these things here, but was patient with the working out of it for the sake of witness. In other words, this was the seed that grew into fully orbed egalitarian. Okay. Now, I've gotten pretty good at knowing what's coming when I listen to people talk about these things. And so I might as well let you in on a little secret, that as soon as we talk about this idea of ideas in the New Testament growing into a modern and better expression, almost guaranteed the idea is going to come up of trajectory hermeneutics, okay? I was listening to a podcast a while ago, and I was listening to this guy talk, and I said to my wife, I, was, I said, he's going to say trajectory hermeneutics, and then bam, he dropped it in the next sentence. It's become a dominating idea. Um, it comes from a particular scholar by the name of Webb, and here's generally what he suggests. In his book, which is called something like Women's Slaves and Homosexuality, uh, he presents a trajectory to hermeneutic, and he basically says, if we start in the Old Testament and move to the New Testament, we see things change, 
and then we see things that don't change. And so what he was actually arguing with trajectory hermeneutic was that homosexuality is stasis throughout the Bible. It doesn't change. But women, according to him, does. And so the restrictions and the limitations and even uh, the treatment of women is lower in the Old Testament and then it's higher in the New Testament. He would say the same thing in slaves. He would say the Old Testament is pro-slavery. The New Testament starts to take the teeth out of slavery by Paul's uh, exhortations to masters and slaves. And he basically says we should just follow that trajectory. Um, there's a whole lot of problems with trajectory hermeneutics. One of the biggest ones being, of course, um, those uh, working for a pro-gay theology have gone, actually, we agree with a trajectory hermeneutic, and you just didn't rightly apply it to homosexuality. Okay? It becomes a tremendously subjective tool. But the other thing that's mistaken about it is that it forgets that although the Bible is written historically, that there is a canonical trajectory to the Bible that actually looks beyond our times, okay? So for example, I already mentioned to you uh, the book of Joel and how it sees in the Old Testament a changing reality of the spirit, right? In the latter days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. We've seen the same thing in this class with the eunuch in Isaiah, haven't we? But where do we find those promises of the future for the eunuch? In the Old Testament in the prophetic books that look forward. Okay? We don't find any of that canonical trajectory on the issues of women, uh, on this issue of women, I should say, specifically this idea of women in leadership. Okay, so if I can draw a parallel, in the Old Testament, we do find female prophets. We do not find female priests. And so this idea of trajectory hermeneutic is something to watch out for, but it also misses a really significant point about this verse, and this is much more important. Okay. Um, first off, the context of this verse has nothing to do with church leadership. As we saw in the verses leading up to this, it's more about church membership than it is about church leadership. Men and women, Jews and Greeks, slave and free men are all full participants in the privilege of church membership. All that salvation is, is available to them. Okay. Um, second, notice that these three pairings aren't hierarchical pairings at all. Jews aren't above Greeks, they're divided from Greeks. Slaves are not slaves and masters here, which is what we'd expect if he was eradicating distinctions and roles, but it's slave and free, that's status. Okay. And then male and female here is not husband and wife, where maybe you could argue a difference in hierarchy, but male and female. And as we've talked about in this class, the Bible does not put all men over all women, ever. Okay. And so instead, it's clearly here of status, but that makes more sense of what Paul says elsewhere as well. Notice what he says here. We're going back to Galatians, but I want to go to Colossians. Notice what he says here in Colossians 3, verse 11. It's relatively similar. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all and, or is all and in all. Does that sound like a good parallel? If we were to open up the treasury of scriptural knowledge or, uh, or a chain reference Bible, a Thompson chain reference, wouldn't we expect these verses to be connected? Different churches, but Paul's making the same point. 
Now here he doesn't mention male and female, but what does he do just a little bit later in Colossians? Wives, be subject to your husbands. Okay. So in the same letter, he makes the same point about status and seems to see a significance of role in gender. Okay. And so just a few verses later, he talks about these roles. Even with slave and free, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Okay, so again, here he says, there's no Greek and Jew, circumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And here he says, slaves obey your masters. Okay. Um, one more example of this. This one's from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember, this is talking about whether you find yourself single or married. But all the examples Paul draws from here are not singleness or married, but from other fields. But notice what they are. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and which God has called to him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price, so do not become bondservants of men. And then his point, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain in God. Okay. So we find the same three pairings here, men and women, in the context of husbands and wives, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, and yet Paul doesn't eradicate but actually upholds those distinctions here. In fact, some of the things that Paul goes on to say about the differences between men and women in role happen in this letter in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 with head coverings and chapter 14 with prophecy. Okay. Although he doesn't encourage, he does here encourage slaves to get their freedom if they can. Okay. Now, we have options here. Either we can allow one verse to disentangle all the rest, or we can try and come up with an understanding that has room for everything that Paul said. And I would suggest that that's a better approach. Stephen Clark here, unless we assume that Paul is normally incoherent, it would make more sense to begin with the view that Paul had some way of putting together Passages like Galatians 3.28 and 1 Corinthians 11.12-16, which were probably written within a year or two of one another. In other words, even this idea that maybe his opinions evolved over time doesn't line up with the data. Okay? Likewise, he undoubtedly had a way of putting together the comment, there cannot be slave and free man in Colossians 3.11, with his teaching on proper relationships between masters and slaves in the same chapter. We want an interpretation that explains all of Paul or what the Bible in general says instead of one that elevates or explains away the others. Now, we're going to take a break before we look at the important, tech, tech, uh, important uh, texts 
that deal with these issues. But I wanna just make one more point about that idea. What I just said is we should prefer an interpretation that explains all of Paul or the Bible in general says, instead of one that elevates one, uh, one passage and explains away all the others, okay? This is a classic and dangerous uh, shortfall in, in people's theological mindsets. They take a single passage, they anoint it king, and then it determines and shapes and excludes and explains away everything else, okay? Now, to be clear, theological work, when we try and answer the question, what does the Bible say about an issue, is not democratic in nature. We don't just make a pile of verses and go, well, I guess God's sovereignty wins and man's free will loses. That's not how we handle it. Different passages have heavier weight, but not because they endorse our opinion, but because they are near the heart and soul of the scripture's message as a whole. So for example, we really care about what happens in Exodus 3, because that's where God's self-revelation as the I am begins his journey with Israel. We really care about the things that happen in the gospel because Jesus is the one we proclaim to follow, so we should do things like him, okay? There are centerpiece texts, but we always have to watch out from the danger of choosing our center in the Bible saying, this is the sun of our solar system and everything else must orbit around it or just be an asteroid, okay? Um, which I think is the danger of this. I will tell you honestly and truly on issues of sexuality, on issues of the end times, of eschatology, on issues of church polity and how we organize things. My only concern always is how can we use this hermeneutic in other places? Usually if I have a problem with a viewpoint, it's because I don't like how they handle the scriptures, okay? Because once you do that, once you teach yourself uh, interpretive yoga, then you will just wind and bend around everything and suddenly you're shaping the Bible in your image instead of being shaped by it. So let's take a break. Let's go ahead and take a 10-minute break till 8.20, and then we'll return and look at the text. We're going to go ahead and um, get in here. The passages we're about to look at, um, as I mentioned, have been kind of the, the cutting edge of the, the gender wars within Christianity. Um, and so there is a wide range of ways to understand or explain and if I'm going to be myself, in some places explain away these passages. Um, uh, but, but I wanna just, just say one more thing before we get into them, um, which is that I think uh, anyone who's involved in ministry, um, anyone who's seeking to plant a church or to pastor, they need to have personal clarity on these issues. Um, Although I have come to clarity on these things, um, when churches disagree with me in one direction or another, um, usually the role that they have women in is not my greatest concern. 
Okay. Sometimes, like I said, ways of getting there uh, have caused other problems that I find concerning. Okay. Um, there has been a bunch of ways to think about this. Uh, one that I've already mentioned um, is to think, this, think about this primarily as describing activities that are out of bound, things that shouldn't be done. And so the question is, what are the activities? Um, for me, it is easier and cleaner and takes that totality and makes sense of the whole if we think of it in terms of roles, okay? But if we were going to do justice to my position tonight, we would actually have to talk about what is a pastor, uh, which is also something that there's a lot of difference and disagreement about because there's so many pieces involved um, Again, I'm, I'm actually sympathetic to many different approaches that are taken on these issues because of the context they're growing in, okay? What the office of pastor is, how a church service works, how the whole congregation operates, their view of the word of God, all of those things kind of bleed into these areas in a way that makes it really almost an apples to oranges comparison to just lay two churches side by side. Um, but... I would like to suggest uh, and demonstrate tonight this idea that all of these passages we're going to look at focus primarily on role, okay? Um, that they are talking about a particular, uh, I don't like the word position, because we don't really talk about our position in the family, uh, but a role, a familial role, and that that's the best way to make sense of things. And so, let's begin um, with 1 Timothy chapter 2 here. And we already read verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. What follows is what we need to focus on. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was deceived became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay. Now, a couple of things here. First, right off the bat, I want you to notice that we see that same moral instinct that we've seen throughout this class. When Paul gives his statements here, I do not permit, he says, his moral logic, his reasoning comes out of Genesis comes out of Genesis 2, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. In other words, he's not making a contextual or a cultural argument, but a supercultural one. He reaches before culture exists, and he says, it is for these theological reasons, these big ideas of male and female that we find in creation itself that I'm saying these things, okay? Um, so second thing that we need to... Um, need to notice here is that the context of this passage in chapter 2 is actually in a broader context of men and women in the church. This is the passage that I mentioned to you that talks about women not being adorned uh, with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. This is the passage where it says, I command that all men lift up holy hands in prayer and, and not in fighting. Okay, so it is, it is part of this discussion and then as we will see, what happens right after this, as the passage closes here, um, save through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control, chapter 3, verse 1 opens, this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so we have 
gender discussion on the front and pastoral office discussion on the tail end. Okay, that's the context here. Okay, um, a few other things. Okay, first, um, in the context here, we see what we've already seen. Okay, that men and women have a place within the church, within salvation, that Jesus is for them. Notice this, just earlier, a few verses. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And unfortunately there, that word for man Christ Jesus doesn't emphasize Jesus' gender. It's anthropos, the human Christ Jesus, which remember, in a theological sense, is profound enough, right, that God has become man in Jesus Christ and become the mediator here, but that salvation is available in one human being, Jesus Christ, and it's available to all human beings because he was human. Okay? That doesn't mean that the maleness of Jesus doesn't matter. And I wish we had time to talk about that, but we don't. But here, the emphasis is one human died for all humans. And so, as we've seen, women have a place within salvation and within the church. Um, also, when we move back down, the opening here um, sees women having a part in the church and that they should be learners. Okay? Let a woman learn is how this opens. In fact, the verb here for learn, that's the imperative. That's the command. Okay? It is the dominant verb in this opening sentence. Learn, okay, if we were to put it in one word with an exclamation part, point. That's what we do with an imperative. Okay? And so the emphasis here is on learn. Okay? It's also helpful here to see the structure of the sentence. In the Greek, this is what it says. In quietness, learn submissively, not teach or have authority over a man, but in quietness. Do you see how this word for quietness begins and ends the conversation? Okay, it, it parenthetically wraps around it here. Okay, now as a side note, this word here for quietness is not absolute silence. In fact, it's used uh, right here in the same chapter in verse 2 for all Christians. Uh, oh, come on. You know that's not what I wanted. There we go. Here he says, we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Does that mean that we should all take a vow of silence? Of course not. Okay? The idea of quiet here is, uh, is more about attitude than it is about noise level. When it says women should learn in quietness, that doesn't mean that they can't ask questions. It doesn't mean that they can't cough. The idea here is one of attitude. In fact, um, we see this also in 2 Thessalonians, used of the way that all Christians are to work. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Okay, again, the idea here isn't about if you talk on the job. It's about a posture of how you go about your work. Okay, it's about an attitude. Okay. Not only that, but when we go back to the passage... The restriction here, not to teach or have authority over a man, is not a restriction on all teaching. Okay? As recovering biblical manhood and womanhood points out, when Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, she must be silent, we do not understand him to mean an absolute prohibition of all teaching by women. 
Paul instructs older women to teach what is good, then they can train younger women, Titus 2, 3, and 4. He commends the teaching that Eunice and Lois gave to their son and grandson Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, 5, and 3, 14. <coughs> Proverbs praises the ideal wife because she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Paul endorses women prophesying in church and that the members, presumably men and women, should teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay? So notice this. This is one of the way, ways where gender roles in the church can go wrong. If you get the prohibition right that women can't be pastors, but there's not teaching going on at other levels than the pastor, then in, innately there are no women teaching. But we need women teachers. We need women to be actively teaching. In fact, you all should be actively teaching as you grow and learn in Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews says. By now you should all be teachers, he says to his congregation in his sermon. Okay? And so teaching is the way that the body works. In fact, what does it say in the context of Ephesians that God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers for the equipping of the saints for ministry so that they may build up the body of Christ. My primary role is to prepare you for your primary role, which is to build up the body, to do the work of ministry, to teach one another, to speak the truth in love, as it says in Ephesians. Okay. Um, then, of course, he finishes, there is Priscilla at Aquila's side correcting Apollos. Okay. So here, there is all sorts of viable teaching, but Paul's statement here is that I do not per permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now, there are some right off, the uh, right off the bat that suggest that this is just about wives and husbands. And remember, verbally, that's a possibility. I do not permit a wife to teach a husband. Okay. Now, we've already seen how gender roles work within the family, so wouldn't that make sense to have a, a special limitation within the church so that you don't have this awkward position of wives submit to your husbands, but men submit to your pastor who's your wife, right? It seems to be incongruent. And so maybe it's a limitation here only on wives who aren't allowed to teach their husbands authoritatively. Um, but here, as we saw earlier, there is no possessive. It doesn't say, I do not permit a wife to teach her own husband. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach a man. Also, the context here is speaking to all men and women in the church, not just in marriage. Marriage isn't in chapter 2. Okay. Um, not to mention, but that's kind of a dead-end position because it means that women who aren't married are are open to higher status within the church, unrestricted status, which doesn't make a lot of sense either. What's really a question here is what kind of teaching is Paul limiting? Okay. So some, as I've mentioned here, suggest that the teaching that's limited here is mixed audience teaching. Okay. That a woman teaching her children or a woman teaching other women is fine, but in an audience like this, it would be inappropriate for a woman to do what I'm doing now. Um, what's more important, though, is, uh, is that he actually says two things, doesn't he? I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. Okay. Now, again, some people read that as two things. So 
uh, a woman can't be the teacher and she also can't be the boss. She can't lead a ministry or a Bible study. Okay, But the, the first and foremost, the word here for authority in the Greek uh, is not exousia, which is used a hundred times in the New Testament, okay? and 25 of those times in Paul. It's the generic word for authority. When Jesus tells the disciples, look, the Gentiles lord their authority over one another, that's exousia. The word that he uses here is a hapax legomen, which is a fancy Latin way of just saying this is the only place we find it in all the New Testament. Which tells us that whatever Paul is trying to say, he means something very specific. When he restricts authority here, it's not authority in principle, it's a particular type of authority. And unfortunately, a word study in how that word's used outside the Bible doesn't get us very far, except that it was sometimes used of capital punishment. Okay. Um, but what I would suggest here is that we're not just encountering a hapax legomen, a word that we find uniquely in the New Testament, but a hendiatus, okay? A hendiatus is when we use two words to mean one thing. And so when you say to your spouse, I'll come out there when I'm good and ready, that's not a two-point problem, is it? Waiting till you're good and also ready. Good and ready is one thing, okay? That's a hendiatus, okay? I would suggest to you that grammatically here, we have a perfect example of a Greek hendiatus. And actually, side note, the New Testament is full of them. And so the idea here is not teaching and authority, but authoritatively teaching. Okay. And again, I would suggest that that points not to a, uh, an activity. So in other words, I wouldn't say, so what's the difference? Is she suggesting her opinion or is she pounding the pulpit? That's not the idea. It's not about an activity here, but again, a role. Authoritative teaching is an activity of a particular role within the church. You're all called to teach, but pastors have a specific role in teaching that is authoritative, right? They are the ones who are to pass on faithfully what they have learned. They are the ones who uh, operate church discipline, and, and uh, they are the ones, remember Acts chapter 6 when the deacons are appointed, for us, as the pastors in the church in Jerusalem, it's not right for us to forsake the ministry of the word for serving of the tables. Okay. There's a particular role there. Okay. Um, so teach authoritatively. When we put these two ideas together, not just teach authoritatively, but a specific type of authority, a word that Paul wants to be very precise on and not generically, this leads me to believe that Paul is primarily talking about pastoral authority. Okay. Just as I am sympathetic with those who maintain pastoral authority and allow room for women to teach on a Sunday morning or from a pulpit under the oversight of the pastors, I'm also truly sympathetic with those who take a broader viewpoint that in the church, women shouldn't teach in settings that include men or operate as authorities. I understand where they're coming from, and it's a pretty clear way to read the passage, isn't it, right? If you were to just open the Bible for the first time and read that expression, wouldn't you generally come to the conclusion that women shouldn't be publicly teaching? It's an okay reading of the text. I think it has problems, and I think it especially has problems in the places where we find women publicly teaching in the New Testament. 
And again, I don't want to explain away or excuse those verses. Instead, I want an idea that understands and embraces that the same author who says this here also speaks of these other people in, in these ways here. I want an idea that explains all of it. And so I think the pastoral office, the role of pastor does this. Okay. One of the reasons I believe that is because the next thing Paul talks about is the office of pastor. Remember that the chapter divisions in your Bible are not original. Paul wasn't penning 1 Timothy and writing in chapter and verse. Chapter 3, right? Those were added near the 15th century for our help so that we could reference chapter and verse and share the Bible with one another. Isn't it handy that I can say turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2? It's helpful, okay? But it's a terrible tool for interpretation because they're arbitrary, They were added basically to evenly divide up the Bible and sometimes to catch the ending of one thought and the beginning of another. But it is so badly done that a rumor is done that the editor who did it, side note, he wasn't a theologian or even a pastor, he was a book printer. He wanted to get an edge on his Bibles being better than other people. There's a rumor that the editor did it on the back of a horse because that's the only way we can explain some of the breaks he makes is as he's riding along, he's just kind of bouncing and drawing the lines. Okay, so if we were just reading 1 Timothy without the chapter breaks, he says this about a particular type of role that's not open to women and then says, now any men who desire the office of overseer desires a good thing. There's a natural flow to that context. Okay. Um, Second, the one another's throughout the epistles written to the whole church include teaching. Okay, um, um, let's see if these are actually in the text. I bet they are. Okay, so, so just a side note here. Here's the rollover. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. All of the, all of the wording here is to men. Um, but the one another's of the New Testament, like this one in Romans, don't seem to be gender specific, okay? I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, again, the word there is andros, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another, okay? Again, Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that's true of men and women, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, what comes before this is Paul's tremendously difficult doctrine of the end times. But he wants them to take that doctrine, to understand it, to share it one another. Share it with one another for encouragement. I mentioned Hebrews earlier. Hebrews is a written sermon to a particular church. It's the passage, you know, it's the book that says, by now you should all be teachers, but look at this one. But exhort everyone, or exhort one another every day, as long as it's called a day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This one's especially important for verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, 
When you gather for worship, that's what that sentence means there, right? Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all be done for building up. He doesn't talk merely about men here. He assumes that men and women are full participants in the church service, including revelations, hymns, lessons, tongues, interpretation. Remember um, that uh, earlier in this letter, Paul doesn't command women not to pray or prophesy in public, but says they should do it dressed as women, right, with a head covering. He assumes they're going to be prophesying when they're gathered with the church. He just says, make sure and do it in a way that recognizes gender distinctions through gender expression, okay? Okay, so that's two things. Paul goes on to talk about pastoral. Teaching is an every member ministry, men and women throughout the New Testament. Third, the teaching for Paul, especially in the pastorals, implies authority and the faithful imparting of doctrine. Listen to what I'm saying here. I'm saying that in the pastoral epistles, so that's First and Second Timothy and Titus, when Paul uses the word teaching, he generally has a narrow focus in mind. Why? Who is Paul writing to? Pastors. And so when he talks about the teaching there, he's talking about something specific. Look at the way that this plays out. Okay, what you've heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Why is, Paul, uh, why is Timothy in Ephesus? To raise up officers, overseers, and deacons. Some of them he's to entrust as faithful men to teach others. Look at Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see the emphasis on sound doctrine there? We'll see it again. Check out this in 1 Timothy. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irrelevant babble and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge. Paul says, you have something important, something that's been handed to you that needs to be protected and preserved. Again in 2 Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Okay. Think of the early church model in Acts chapter 2 that are together every day in fellowship and in prayer and devoted to the apostles' teaching. Okay. In the pastorals, there's an emphasis on doctrinal preservation. And what I would suggest to you is that type of teaching is the responsibility of pastors. Okay. This is also, this understanding of the pastoral office makes sense of the why. Okay. Um, when we go back to 1 Timothy, he says, I do not permit a woman to, ha to teach or have authority over a man, for Adam was for formed first and then Eve. Just as husbands have a particular role in the family, because the church is a family, pastors have a particular role, and thus it is to be fulfilled by men. Okay? In other words, um, uh, there is a fatherly aspect of the role of a pastor. In fact, that makes a lot of sense of Paul's requirements for pastors. Look here in 1 Timothy 3. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. In other words, good fathers make good pastors. 
not CEOs, not entertainers, but according to the New Testament, what we should look for in a pastor is someone who knows how to manage his own household. And remember here, manage means to instruct in the Lord. It means to lead and provide for and all of these things. Those are all things that, um, in a slightly different way, are pastoral. Kathy Keller, who holds the same position that I do, sums up the whole of what we're seeing here in a way that I just find really helpful. Because what we really need is an easy-to-draw boundary so we can just answer yes or no. This is what she says. She says, a woman can do anything in ministry an unordained man can do. I like that distinction. It's easy and clear. Now, the way different churches go about ordination may or may not muddle that idea, but I think we all get the point here, right? Would you let somebody who's not a pastor do this? Then a, a woman can do it just as well as a man. This was a place of my own repentance in my own church, okay? When I planted my church 10 years ago, I was the sole pastor, sole staff member, and in the beginning, the sole minister, right? I was the only one doing anything. That's how it works, okay? Um, and I had a desire to raise up pastors so I wouldn't be alone, okay? Um, but what that meant was I would regularly invite men who I had not ordained to teach on a Sunday morning because where else are they going to get the practice in a small church that only gathers once a week? And then as I was thinking through and studying these things, I realized that I was being sexist by doing so because these men were not ordained, they were not identified as pastors, but I wouldn't have let a woman teach on a Sunday morning. I was inconsistent in my own understanding of scripture. Okay? And so, this idea, a woman can do anything in ministry that an unordained man can do, has been a godsend for me of simplicity, of just helping me sort my own thoughts on these things, and I would suggest that's the best way to understand uh, these things, of course. This makes, again, getting into the question, what is a pastor, um, getting that question right tremendously important. See, here's the thing. Like I mentioned, we have overvalued and over-elevated the role of pastor and excused the church at large from ministry proper, which has a greater impact on women than it does men, doesn't it? Because if only men are teaching in the church, then the church suffers. But it is possible, in fact, I would suggest it is biblical, that we can have men be the pastors, but fully functioning, all body, every member ministry, men and women, that express and bring out the values of, uh, of those differences in women and men. Okay. Now, I want to point out something as well here. When we're talking about the New Testament office of overseer, we are not talking primarily about a decision maker, which is how I think we generally think of pastors. Pastors are the ones who, you know, there's so many different versions of this. It's my vision, and it's my ministry, and you support it or benefit from it, okay? Not biblical. Or I'm the one who determines how we spend the budget or these types of things. Not biblical. When you look at what a pastor does biblically, decision-making isn't really even in the radar, even though we can imagine some decisions being made. Who decides if you buy a new church building? The New Testament doesn't care. There are no church buildings, right? We have built on these things, but ultimately, pastors are the ones who are responsible for the people. The word pastor is a relational word, just like the word father. It implies a particular relationship that you have 
with your pastors and they have with you and it's a role of responsibility, right? Think of the word shepherd. I find that to be helpful. Um, Christians today, Stephen Clark says, can often miss the significance of the early church model. For one thing, modern Christians tend to put the accent on the decision-making role of elders and the need for some kind of input on that level for women. And I would say, if that's what it is, then we're making a mistake. But it's not about decision-making. In the early church, decision-making was a small part of an elder's role. Their primary responsibility was the personal government of the people. Okay? A responsibility of shepherding and caring for souls. I don't remember if I said this when I talked about men and women. Here's a way that I would sum up men and women in marriage. Okay? I don't care who does the work or brings home the most provision or those types of things, but I will tell you who will be responsible if the family goes hungry. The man. I would say the same thing in a church. The ministry should be fully orbed and functioning with a whole body, but there is one who is primarily responsible for the spiritual state of the people entrusted to him, the pastor. Okay? It is relational in nature. Okay, now let's look at Paul's reasoning. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay. Again, he turns here to Genesis 2 and 3 for his reasoning. The idea is not that women are more gullible or susceptible to deception. Okay. The idea isn't here, hey, women can't teach because they get it wrong which I think is sometimes how we read this. If that was the case, why would he mention Adam being formed first and then Eve? The idea here is that in doing so, she usurped the order that God had designed. Like we talked about, Eve listens to the serpent, Adam listens to Eve, and no one listens to God. But the way it was designed was to move the other direction. Okay? Now, what does verse 15 mean? that she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. First, the word here, sozo, saved, is a broad term. A lot of times when Jesus says, go, your faith has made you well, your faith has saved you. Okay? And so the idea isn't that although men are saved by grace, women are saved by childbearing. That's not the idea. Um, in fact, look at how Paul uses the word for Timothy himself in chapter 4. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Are pastors saved by seeing their church come to faith? No. This idea is a broad term. Specifically here, it's saved from deception. Okay. Keep a close watch on your teaching, and you'll spare yourself from deception. And I would suggest it's the same thing here. Okay. She was deceived and became a transgressor, but if, uh, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, she will be saved from deception. Okay. Um, we should and could talk about this longer, but we have a whole other passage to get to, and we're running out of time. So... Um, you can check out my online lecture for more detail on this and just fast forward till you find it. But let's deal with another issue here. Um, so that's a very hard text. Uh, some believe that saved through childbearing there is saved through the birth of the child 
In other words, even though Eve was deceived, it's through Eve that this child was born, right? The seed of the woman. Uh, there's a beautiful painting out there. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And it's Eve standing next to Mary. And Eve is covered in her fig leaves and she has her hands on the belly of Mary. Don't ever forget that a woman may have brought sin into the garden, but she also brought a savior into the world, right? There's a full circleness to that story. And it may be that that's what's being talked about here. Um, it also may be that the, that the uh, woman has a significant role in the raising of her children. Um, but let's set that aside. Some argue that what Paul says here is not universal, that either he's addressing a specific problem of we know not what that was only going on in Ephesus, so it's not our problem, or that it was temporary. Like I said, that this was a sanction Paul put on until we got our heads on straight and realized men and women are really equal, until we got the full understanding of what the gospel meant. Um, some even suggest that women were falling prey to a particular false teaching. And so Paul nips it in the bud by saying, no women teaching. But that just makes Paul a sexist. Because clearly here he restricts all women, not just the offending ones. Okay. Some suggest this was only for the church in Ephesus and had to do with particular circumstances. However, the purpose of 1 Timothy is to lay out the structure for the church. Also, Paul nowhere restricts the command, but states it generally. As we'll see, it also aligns with what he says to the Corinthians. But most importantly here, he roots his reasons not in circumstances. He doesn't say, we need you know, an above and beyond the law here because of what's going on. He says, Adam and Eve. Okay. He uses a supercultural indicator, draws us back to creation, draws us back to the purpose of men and women and their design. Some have suggested that this restriction was due to the fact that women in the ancient world were generally uneducated and thus no longer applies. But this is a really hard case to make in a place like Ephesus. Okay. Um, here. <laughs> if any woman in the New Testament church was well educa educated, it would have been Priscilla. Yet Paul was writing 1 Timothy 2.12 to Ephesus. That's what he tells us in the first chapter. The home church of Priscilla and Aquila. So as this letter is read for the first time, Priscilla, the one who helps with the instruction of Apollos, the one who's well known by Paul, is sitting in the audience. Beginning in 50 AD, even by that time, Priscilla knew scripture well enough to help instruct Apollos. Then she'd probably learned from Paul himself for another three years while he stayed at Ephesus teaching the whole counsel of God, according to Acts 20. And no doubt many other women in Ephesus followed her example and also learned from Paul. Aquila and Priscilla had gone to Rome sometimes later, about AD 58, but apparently had returned, for they were in Ephesus again at the end of Paul's life about 67 AD. Therefore, it's likely they were back in Ephesus two years earlier, about the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Okay, So she's present right there, yet not even well-educated Priscilla nor any other well-educated woman in Ephesus were allowed to teach men in the public assembly of the church. Writing to Ephesus, Paul said this. The reason was not education, but creation order. Okay. Now, Got to think of how to do this. Very quickly, 1 Corinthians 14. Usually, I would want to spend an hour with this text. 
We're going to do it in three minutes. But that's, we can do that because we've already looked uh, at this other passage. I want you to notice this, okay? 1 Corinthians 14. Now remember, up front, three chapters earlier, Paul expects women to be actively involved in the worship service, even in prophecy. But read this. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Then notice this. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it's reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Okay. Notice up front the universality of this section. He begins with, as in all the churches, and he ends with calling them out and says, are you unique? Are you the only church that God is active and working in? And then he says, if anyone of you thinks that he hears from God, he should agree with me. Okay? It's very strong in its universal language. Okay. Um, once again here, Paul can't be speaking of total silence in the church when it says here that women aren't permitted to speak because we've already seen they are. Just three chapters earlier, prophesying in the gathering. So this isn't a limitation on talking within church in any way. So what is it about? What type of speaking does Paul envision here? Now here it's not pastoral teaching. That's not in the context. But there is something that is in the context right before this, and that is the judging of prophecies. Okay. If you can remember with me, 1 Corinthians 14 builds on the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 that should be used for the principle of 1 Corinthians 13, love, to build up one another. And then chapter 14 goes, now here's how it works when you gather together, right? It's, it's a rules for an orderly and God-glorifying service, okay? Um, and so notice, right before he addresses women here, it's let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said, Okay, um, here there is a requirement for those who are prophets, their prophecies are to be judged, they're to be weighed. Okay. Uh, this is similar to what we see in 1 Thessalonians. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So how should the church feel about people who give a prophecy at the church service? First off, we shouldn't just go, that's creepy, that's weird, knock it off but we should test it. That's the same case that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians, that they need to be weighed, they need to be tested. Unlike the prophets in the Old Testament who could say, thus saith the Lord, prophecy in the New Testament uh, functions under the authority of the word of God and is to be tested against it. Okay, And so... Um, uh, for example, look at this in 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out in the world. Test, test, test. Test by the standard of the scriptures. Okay. Now, when we go back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 35, if there's anything the woman desires to learn, let them ask their husband at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. How we sometimes envision this is some ignorant woman in the audience who goes, hey, 
hey, I don't understand what you just said. Can you tell that again? And Paul's just saying, wait till you get home. Your husband will explain it to you. But again, this isn't about preaching. It's about prophecy. So the idea here is that if a man's prophecy is being tested, his wife can't stand in judgment over it. Okay. They may have a private conversation about it when they get home, but there's something about this that is out of order. Okay. Even look at Paul's reasoning, just a verse here. He says, The woman should keep silent in churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. There is no place in the Old Testament where it says women should be silent in the assembly, or even that they should be in submission in the assembly. Clearly here, when Paul references the law, he must be talking about the same Genesis 2 ideas that we've already seen. And so we could say here, because Adam was formed first and then Eve. We could say here, because Eve was made for Adam and not Adam for Eve. The same thing. In fact, probably the reason he says, as the law also says, is because he just quoted from Genesis on these things two chapters earlier in chapter 11. Okay. Um, and so what I would suggest here is that it's again this weighing of prophecy against received doctrine that is in appearance. And so again, we see it connected here uh, with the pastoral role. Okay, let me summarize here. What we've seen tonight is that women are to be active in ministry and like men are empowered with spiritual gifts to do so. The only office barred for them because the church is a family and thus the order reflects the image of God, the true shepherd and we are the sheep is the office of pastor. This is not based on ability, but on design and the image of God. It's not about worth or value, but reflecting God. Nowhere does Paul limit women because of their ability or their rationality or any of those things, but because of this order in male and female. Now, because it's not based on ability, the way that we handle this in complementarian churches should make that tremendously clear. In other words, we should be interested in the opinion, insights, and instruction of women. Okay. Um, this is from Discovering Biblical Equality. If women were truly regarded as no less than men in their intrinsic capacities and inbuilt resources for leadership, decision-making, and spiritual understanding, then men in leadership would routinely utilize women's ability fully in such areas as financial and administrative management, ministry to both men and women, moral and theological reasoning, spiritual gifts and insights, and biblical exegesis and exposition. Furthermore, women would not be consistently interrupted, dismissed, patronized, or ignored when they speak up in classrooms or staff, faculty, board meetings of Christian organizations. Rather, men would seek to listen to, respect, and appreciate and seek out women's counsel and expertise in all areas where gifted women stand to contribute to the important tasks of shepherding God's flock and sharing the gospel of Christ with the world at large. Now, obviously, discovering biblical equality is an egalitarian position. And they're trying to live out the best of that, but there is not a line of that that I disagree with as a complementarian. I can stamp an, a strong amen on that and still say, but the Bible does maintain a distinction for the role of pastor. Okay. Now, like I said, some churches... Uh, handle this by having people who are not ordained on Sunday morning, men and women, under the oversight of the pastors. 
as long as that's clear and visible, I'm generally okay with it. You want to know why I don't do that in my church? It's because I believe every time the church gathers, we need to do the impartation of doctrine. And so if it's not done by a pastor, then it's not done at all. Okay? It's not that there can't be a teaching or an exhortation. And most of the churches that I've encountered that have women who regularly preach, they're not doing the impartation of doctrine anyways. In fact, my greatest complaint in those churches is no one is. Instead, you just get a heartfelt homily and, and a thought for the day. I, I don't think they're you know, breaking God's rules for men and women there. They're breaking God's rules for what, what's supposed to happen when we gather on Sunday. It's much bigger than that. Okay? But I'm sympathetic to that approach. In our church, we've made it primary. And so on a Sunday morning, you will see men and women grace, uh, grace the stage of our church in a whole bunch of roles. We have a call to worship, a reading of a psalm, a benediction. We have announcements and sharing and testimony and those types of things. But we also have two things that only the pastors do. Not men, pastors. And that is the catechism, which if you're not familiar with it, is a summary of Christian teaching in question and answer format. It defines for us Christian doctrine that we believe and the preaching of God's word. But if it was a Wednesday night, I have no problem having a woman teach. If it's a Bible study at home, I have no problem having a woman teach. If it's uh, classes, like Sunday school, I have no problem having women teach. But there is one weekly expression of pastoral authority in our church, and that is Sunday for the sermon. Okay. Um, but what I would suggest is... Um, what I would suggest is what's more important to me than coming up with some pat-down way of believing these things is being consistent with that way, okay? And that's the concern of discovering biblical equality here. Interestingly enough, if you read the book that this is responding to, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, they actually want the same things and encourage the same things and invite women into the same places, okay? Um, and then there's one other thing that I think needs to be said and then we'll close. Saying this is not the same thing as saying that all men are qualified for the pastoral office. And that is a huge and sinful mistake that the church has made. It is shameful when we have unworthy men in the office, especially when the church has women of greater character and ability. Okay. C.S. Lewis has a super interesting essay that was written when the Anglican church first considered ordaining women. It's called On Priestesses. And it is a fascinating read. But what he, suggests, uh, what he suggests is that the problem, in fact, I, I think I have it here. Good. We men may often make very bad priests. That's because we're insufficiently masculine. It's no cure to call in those who are not masculine at all. A given man may make a very bad husband. You cannot mend matters by trying to reverse their roles. He may make a bad male partner in a dance. The cure for that is that men should more diligently attend dancing classes, not that the ballroom should henceforward ignore distinctions of sex and treat all dancers as neuter. Okay. In other words, he says, if the problem is a lack of male leadership, it can't be solved by women. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't constantly work in that place because there isn't, you know, a few good men available. Uh, and, and we find that even throughout the Bible. 
God uses who's available and class and distinction doesn't matter. Um, but if our goal is to be men and women in the church, then we need to have a long-term goal of raising up those men and not a short-term goal of saying, well, there's none around, so we'll do things differently. To some degree, it's the same in marriage. Okay. If a wife wants her husband to lead the way he's supposed to in Scripture, she feels oftentimes like she has two, offers, uh, uh, two options. One is to nag him into doing it. And the problem with that approach is that innately takes the reins. Okay. Uh, and the, the other is to ignore the value of it at all. And this is so counterintuitive, but I've never gotten away from the fact that God is fully capable of working in the context of order submissively to bring about change. And that doesn't mean you just zip up or that you tolerate abuse or any of those things, but it does shape the way you respond to those things. Okay? The easiest example for me, and this is where we'll close, if you were a student in a classroom, like we've talked about, there's an innate authority structure there and a good one because they know and you don't. But sometimes they don't know. And sometimes they're arrogantly using that to propagate things that are not true. There is a right and appropriate way as a student to handle that, and that's through asking questions. A uniquely studently way to challenge authority. Okay. I know that isn't a direct parallel in marriage or even in a church setting, but the concept of finding a way to do it within the order, embracing the order, desiring the order, longing for it to be the way it should be, is the way that we should go about these things. Let me pray for us and we'll go. Boy, Lord, we have spent two hours solid talking about this and we really just began. We really didn't get as far as we need. We didn't answer any uh, or all questions, but uh, but at the same time, Lord, we have pointed a trajectory, and that trajectory seems to line up with the things we've already seen. And it seems to cultivate a life in the church that both conveys your image rightfully and truthfully, and also leaves room for all of us to be used and to flourish and glorify you. And I just ask, Lord, that that wouldn't just be an idea that we would take hold of, but that... Um, that the idea would take hold of us, that we would seek to express and live this out and that there would be a fully orbed image of God in your church as we all use our gifts in the fields and in the vocation that you've given us to build up the body and be made to the fullness and stat uh, stature of your mature image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.